Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Welcome to Creating a Family, talk about infertility and adoption. Today's show will be on preserving your fertility when you've been diagnosed with cancer. This is a subject that we really need to spread the word about, and here's a sample of what you're going to hear on today's show. And what I try to stress when when talking with patients and, and frankly, to other physicians is it's not just the radiation treatment. It's not just the chemo treatment. It's not even just the surgery itself that may affect their fertility. But all of those things certainly do, and we can talk about that in detail. But my big point I always try to get out there when, when having these talks is the time that it takes to go through the surgery and then the chemotherapy and for example, breast cancer, it may be years before your oncologist says that it's okay to get pregnant. Uh, And so when you have a time frame of being diagnosed with cancer, say at 35, 38, 40, uh, the good news is the oncologists are, are very good at successfully treating this and you live long and productive lives. But then if you're not able to try to get pregnant till you're in your mid-40s or later, then there's just a natural reduction in pregnancy rates and success rates, irregardless of the effects of chemo or radiation or surgery. So time is critical in how long you'll be through these treatments before then starting into attempting family building. I'm Dawn Davenport, the director of Creating a Family. We are the National Infertility and Adoption Education and Support Organization, and you can find us online at creatingafamily.org. We're a weekly radio show, and we use the podcast model. Uh, One of the advantages of the podcast model is that we can archive all the shows, so we've got seven years' worth, seven-plus years' worth of, of resources for you. But another advantage is that you can automatically uh, hear about uh, in advance about uh, each show, each episode, if you subscribe to the show. And you can subscribe at either iTunes, by just typing in our name, Creating a Family, or go to the radio page of our website, uh, creatingafamily.org slash radio show, and you can subscribe there as well. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Fighting cancer doesn't have to mean a loss of your fertility. If you or a loved one are facing cancer, you may be eligible for no-cost medication through Faring's Heartbeat Program. To learn more, you can visit their website, heartbeatprogram.com, or you can talk to your oncologist or reproductive endocrinologist today. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support from all of our gold sponsors who believe in our mission of providing unbiased education and support to the patient community. And some of our wonderful gold sponsors include Fairfax Cryobank. Fairfax has been a leader in sperm donation for over 25 years and is dedicated to supplying updated, verified, and accurate medical and personal information on their donors. Only one in 200 applicants make it through their screening process to become donors. We also have Reproductive Medicine Associates of New Jersey. They are a recognized scientific and patient care leader in the field of infertility. They have seven offices in New Jersey, and they maintain an IVF delivery rate well above the national average, and they offer the latest and validated technical solutions to help hopeful patients increase their chances of success in the shortest time possible. We also have other great sponsors whose generosity allows us to bring you this show, as well as, as I said, all the resources we do provide here at Creating a Family. We ask that when choosing an infertility service provider, consider choosing one from the Creating a Family directories on our service provider page of our site. You can search by a whole lot of things, location, services provided, uh, success rates, things like that. Um, And uh, these are things that we think are important uh, and we think you will think are important. By using these directories, you support those who support us, and we thank you. 
Today's show will be on preserving your fertility when you have a diagnosis of cancer. A um, cancer diagnosis is devastating on so many different levels. And often, quite frankly, patients are so overwhelmed that the last thing they think about is getting on with their life once treatment is passed. And this would include taking actions now to preserve their options for having kids after cancer. Our guest today to talk about this is Dr. Michelle Otte. She is the Laboratory Director for Fairfax Cryobank, and she works with male cancer patients. We also have Dr. Stephen Lincoln. He is a reproductive endocrinologist and medical medical director of the Fertility Preservation Center for Cancer Patients at the Genetics and IVF Institute. And last but certainly not least, we have Lauren Herring. She is a fertility nurse as well as the co-director and co-founder of the Fertility Preservation Center for Cancer Patients at GIVF. Welcome, Dr. Lincoln, Dr. Adi, and Lauren Herring I'm sorry, to Creating a Family. Thank, Thank you. you for having us. It's a pleasure to be with you. I am really glad we are we're talking about this. is a, a subject that we come we circle back to here at to creating a family because I think there is such a need for getting the word out about uh, about this option. And the more we do to get the word out, the better. Um, when discussing fertility preservation, when you have uh, when we're talking about cancer, it helps I think sometimes to separate the discussion between males and females because obviously our reproductive systems are quite different and, and are, are differently affected by both the diagnose by the cancer as well as by the uh, treatment options. So when necessary, that's what we're going to do on this show, and not always will it be necessary. Um, Dr. Lincoln, I want to send you the first question. I, I'm going to assume that sometimes it's the cancer itself that affects your fertility, and sometimes it's the treatment of the cancer that impacts fertility. What cancers directly affect someone's ability to conceive or to carry a baby to term or to impregnate their partner? Yeah, and it's it's a uh, great introduction to this this whole topic. And, and when I'm giving talks uh, and, and presentations to others, I, I kind of start with just in general, there may be as many as 140,000 in the United States that are diagnosed with cancer before the age of 45, 40,000 less than than age 40. There's over 10,000 breast cancer uh, breast cancer patients each year, uh, and so this is a very important topic. And <clears throat> Probably the most recent studies have suggested only 50 to 60 percent of oncologists even discuss these risks to their future fertility uh, because, as you alluded to in your introduction, everything, everything is so busy and, and so complicated and they're saving lives and, and it's just a, a difficult thing to bring up. Um, but it is important because as many as 50 to 75 percent of patients that, that may have the option are concerned about their future reproductive uh, capabilities. And so it's an important topic. And, and, and what I try to stress when, when talking with patients and, and, frankly, to other physicians, is it's not just the radiation treatment. It's not just the chemo treatment. It's not even just the surgery itself that may affect their fertility. But all of those things certainly do, and we can talk about that in detail. But my big point I always try to get out there when, when having these talks is the time that it takes to go through the surgery and then the chemotherapy and, for example, breast cancer, it may be years before your oncologist says that it's okay to get pregnant. Uh, And so when you have a time frame of being diagnosed with cancer, say at 35, 38, 40, uh, the good news is the oncologists are, are very good at successfully treating this and you live long and productive lives. But then if you're not able to try to get pregnant till you're in your mid-40s or later, then there's just a natural reduction in pregnancy rates and success rates, irregardless of the effects of chemo or radiation or surgery. So time is critical in how long you'll be through these treatments before then starting into attempting family building. You know, that is such a great point because it will take time. And, and you gave the ages of 36, 38, but the reality is even someone who is in their early 30s um, needs to be concerned because we know that fertility is not a, not a steep cliff, but at the uh, rate of decline in fertility um, starts picking up uh, around the age of 35, even without a uh, cancer and without treatment of cancer. So it's a it's a great point um, that, uh, regardless of the, uh, and, and, and regardless of the type of cancer that you have, or the type of treatment that you have, if I'm hearing you correctly. Correct. Um, 
Yeah, but it, are there specific cancers that are going to uh, make render you uh, infertile, regardless of the type of treatment that you have? There is. It depends, of course, on which cancer you're talking about, and, and I don't want to overstate the obvious, but if you have ovarian cancer or uterine cancer that's going to require removal of those organs, the ovaries or the uterus, that clearly has a dramatic effect. Uh, if you remove the ovaries and, and you haven't tried to preserve eggs prior to doing that, then you can't get pregnant uh, with your own ovaries. If you remove the uterus, you're going to have to, of course, have a gestational carrier in that situation <clears throat> if, if, if that's the case. Other cancers in general, it, it really depends upon what the treatment that's recommended for those cancers as to what the effect of the fertility is. That is to say, some chemotherapy agents have limited or maybe even no effect on their fertility, uh, such things as methyltrexate and, and things like that. Other chemotherapy agents uh, can have devastating effects on the ovaries in their ability to produce good quality eggs later. Uh, and so it really depends on the type of treatment that's needed within the chemotherapy range. Same thing is true in radiation. What dosage of radiation you get really makes a, a difference in how it affects your fertility. <clears throat> so you can't just say one cancer has this effect on, on fertility. It really depends on the treatment as much as the cancer. Yeah. You know, one of the things that we've seen in our audience is that people who have been diagnosed with uh, a cancer of the female reproductive organs are more likely to be talked about with through their doctor about fertility preservation. Lauren, have you seen this as well? Um, well, that's actually one of the big reasons that when Dr. Lincoln and I first started this program that we started immediately our first sort of point of attack was directly to the oncologists and the surgeons. And what we found was several years ago, probably less than 50% of all the physicians even brought up this topic. And it was something that in many studies was found to be a, a very large regret that these patients weren't given the opportunity to at least find out the information, whether it was right or not for them in their situation. They wanted to have the information. So we, we have seen that it is definitely something that is on the rise. These physicians are bringing it up more, but a lot of patients are taking a bit more control and doing more research and, and asking their physicians about it directly. Can, can um, radiation affect your fertility, even if the area to be irradiated is nowhere near your reproductive organs, male or female. Uh, Lauren, any thoughts on that? And then, and from the male standpoint, I'm going to go back to you then, Michelle, but uh, I'm sure. Dr. Adi. Go ahead, though. Uh, Lauren Herring, talk about the, from the female standpoint, the radiation, if it's some organ far removed from your reproductive organs. I'm actually going to defer that to Dr. Lincoln for <laughs> a more appropriate answer. That's, oh, yeah, fine. Certainly if uh, one is going to receive radiation and, and, and the situation allows for shielding of the ovary and shielding of the uterus so that you can affect the radiation to the other areas, that's huge. That can really protect your fertility dramatically. And, and obviously if, if that's uh, an option, we would strongly encourage that. That. The the other point I would make about radiation, I said earlier, of course, it depends on the dose, but it also kind of depends upon the age of the patient as to what mm. the effect on the fertility. You can have the same radiation dose that's needed to treat the cancer for someone who's, say, 40, 42, 43. That can have dramatic effects to their ability to get pregnant even a year later. But if they're 22 or 23 or 24, the ovaries are a little more resilient, if you will, to mm -hmm. those sort of treatments. Not saying that they don't have effect, they, they clearly do, but can maybe withstand that sort of uh, treatment at an earlier age. So it's the age of the patient, and certainly, as you, as you said, um, Non, you want to protect your your reproductive organs, male or female, as Michelle's going to probably tell us in a second. You can protect the gonads in the in the male just as well when radiation is needed to treat the cancer. You know what you're saying makes just from a logical standpoint really good sense. A 22 year old has got a robust, usually 
a robust egg supply, but a 32-year-old less and a 36-year-old less. So, you know, with a, if there's an impact on your egg supply, and I realize that's not the only thing that is impacted quality and other things are impacted as well, but nonetheless it makes sense that if you've got a, a larger number, a reduction is, is less, uh, less dramatic uh, or less impactful than it would be if you're, if you're not. Um, Dr. Adi, tell us about the yes. male from the male standpoint. So in terms of the radiation therapy, obviously if we're talking about cancers, testicular cancer, something um, that is directly related to the genitalia, that's that's different. But if you're talking about a, um, you know, a, a cancer that is where we can shield the gonads and the testicles, it, it can slow down or possibly stop the sperm cell production if if it's near the target area of radiation. But if they're well shielded and, um, you know, protected, Sperm cell production can recover. Um, it could be, you know, a year to four years it can take to, to completely recover from the radiation dose. Um, but but as Dr. Lincoln said, you know, depending on the type of cancer and the, the type of treatment, that's going to determine the potential effects on fertility. What about chemo? I mean, chemo is systemic, whereas radiation is, is being aimed mm-hmm. at a specific spot, but chemo is not. How does chemo affect sperm production as well as sperm quality? Yeah, chemotherapy, as you said, is definitely it's it's the most damaging to your fertility. Um, it, it it actually cannot it doesn't only affect the um, the sperm that are already have already been produced, but it can also affect the germ cells, which are the the progenitor cells, the cells that produce the the sperm cells. Um, and it can it can actually also impact testosterone levels, which are really crucial to male f- fertility. So chemotherapy, if a patient is going to undergo chemotherapy, we definitely recommend that they bank prior to their um, prior to beginning treatment and it, it it can fertility can be restored over time depending again on the drug that's used and um, the dosage and and that leads me to the question of and this may differ between chemotherapy and radiation, but how long does it take to for men? We know that sperm production is is relatively rapid, especially you know uh, in comparison to you know women that have all the eggs at birth and mm-hmm. and men are continuing to produce sperm. But how long does it take for them to recover if they're going to recover? How long do you need to give it to see if they're going to recover? Yeah, so again, it, it's going to depend. There are so many factors that play into it, but basically, you know, what we have seen happen is we'll have gentlemen come in, bank the sperm samples, and then um, depending, either radiation or chemotherapy after their surgeries, um, we'll have them come back in um, at the recommendation of their oncologist, either six 9, 12, or 18 months after their treatments are completed to do a semen analysis to see if their sperm count has recovered, if the sperm look healthy, if they're modal and swimming around happily. Um, So there really isn't a clear bottom line answer for that. It really does depend on all of those variables of type of cancer, type of treatment, dosage of the treatment. Um, And it really is a collaboration between the oncologists, fertility doctors, the sperm bank, to figure out how best to proceed. Um, generally, if a gentleman comes back at whatever period after you know after the treatment and has a really good, robust semen analysis, uh, semen sample done, um, sometimes they decide not to continue storing the sample they had banked, but other times we've seen men want to continue to bank those samples just in case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, why not Don, have the insurance other than the cost? Yeah, Dr. Yeah, Don, uh, I, and Don, sorry for interrupting. And no, I just sure. would like to add to this this conversation because it's, it's very important. Uh, and Michelle is exactly right. There can be variability in the response of men over years, literally, mm-hmm. between their chemo and radiation going from azospermia or, or no sperm for a time to they start getting sperm function back. And it's really not fair, but men, you know, as you said, Dawn, make new sperm all the time, whereas the <laughs> ladies, the women, you're born with just what you said, the eggs that you have. And so whatever damage occurs through chemo or radiation or, as we said, time, that damage is done for 
forever, but for the men, we have a chance to have some sort of recovery. The, the other part that's a bit unfair is that even if you get some recovery of sperm function, but, but not all or all the way back to normal, mm-hmm. there's several fertility option treatment options that one can do with that same sperm, such as intrauterine inseminations, or as I'm sure you've talked about on your program, IVF and intercytoplasmic sperm injection. And so we can literally take men that are making just a very few sperm after these sort of treatments and perform IVF and ICSI, and these couples are able to conceive, uh, and, and that's what's remarkable. Not everybody needs necessarily IVF and ICSI, but even though your sperm function maybe has been affected for many, many years, there's mm-hmm. options if you're just making a few sperm, and, and so that's that's the good news. Yeah, that, that absolutely and, and, is. Go ahead, Michelle. I was just going to say, related directly to what Dr. Lincoln is saying, is that oftentimes we'll see that men who have received a diagnosis of testicular cancer already have compromised fertility prior to any type of surgery or treatment, and we still recommend that they bank because, you know, as he said, we could potentially... In in the case of male fertility, it literally does take the one good sperm. So even if a, a gentleman with testicular cancer comes in and he has a very low volume, very low count, uh, low or no motility, we're still able to take that sample and do an analysis, process it, freeze it, and it can still potentially be used in the future. It does. And, and jumping effect. back. Excuse me, Don. I'm sorry. I I don't mean to interrupt again. I get excited about this conversation. (laughs) Forgive me. It is it's not fair. But when you have that same application to the women, you can't say it only takes one egg that that egg had can be affected by age, as we've said, mm-hmm. by the chemo or the radiation. And so if, if if a lady says, well, I still have a few eggs, don't I? And, and the answer is yes, and, and she still may have some chances, but her fertility has been significantly reduced mm-hmm. if that's the situation. And I'm sorry for the interruption. No, no, and you're right. There is, you know, as with so many things in fertility, it does feel, from the female's point of view, unfair. Um, right. But- but there's nothing we're going to do about that. I did, before we, we get off of this topic, I did want to know, uh, uh, Dr. Lincoln had talked about age as a, uh, a a older woman, and I don't mean an old woman, but a woman over the age of, let's say, 40 or 38 or whatever, is going to be, her egg supply is going to, her fertility, let me say that, is going to be potentially impacted more by the cancer treatment than a 20-some-odd-year-old. Would the same, uh, uh, Dr. Adi, be said for men, would a 40-year-old or 45-year-old man going through the same type of treatment, let's say chemo, is he is his sperm count going to be more impacted, or not just count? I shouldn't say that. Count quality, whatever, everything. Mm-hmm. His fertility more impacted than say a 22 year old male going through the same type of treatment. Yeah, it's. I think it's a little bit um, it's challenging to say in terms of male fertility. Uh, you know, we for the sperm donor program, we limit our donors' ages to 18 to 39 years, nine years old, and that's just based on several recommendations. You know, but generally, uh, male fertility is much more robust going into their 40s and even 50s than when you're looking at women's fertility. Um, it's it really is going to depend what the man's uh, fertility measures were prior to the diagnosis. Um, obviously. I, when you're talking about cancer, it is more than just the cancer. It does have to do with general health and well-being and how the person is responding to treatment. So I would say, you know, difficult, again, to give a, a definitive answer there. But if I, I'm more apt to say a healthier person who has lower risk factors for affecting fertility would do better, not just based on age. Age being exactly. one of the, the, the positive things, you know, if you're younger, you're generally healthier. But if you know you could be a 22 year old who smokes and drinks and doesn't choose to live a healthy lifestyle compared to a 45 year old who lives a very healthy lifestyle and your fertility could be better then gotcha you are listening to creating a family today we're talking about preserving your fertility after you've been diagnosed with cancer creating a family has the largest infertility and adoption communities on the social networks and we would love to have you join us There are three ways to connect with us on Facebook. We have our Facebook page, which is Creating a Family. 
and you can find it facebook.com slash creatingafamily. We also have a very active, robust, shall we say, uh, online support group. It is a closed Facebook group, uh, so you have to request to join, but we will let you in, the more the merrier. Uh, and you can find the easiest way to find that is just to type the words creating a family into the Facebook search box. You can like the page and join the group. Both will pop up. Or you can connect with me personally, and that's dawn.davenport1. We are also big Pinterest fans around here. We have uh, close to 30 uh, boards. It is a really fun place to hang out for inspiration, education, community, or whatever. So you can find us on Pinterest at Creating a Family. And we also hang out at Twitter, and you can find us on Twitter at Creating a Family. Well, let's move now to talking about, okay, you've, you've got a diagnosis. You are um, looking at your treatment options. You have been fortunate uh, uh, that, that somebody has talked to you about the possibility of preserving your fertility. So what are your options for preserving your fertility if you're getting ready to get under, before you are getting ready to undergo treatment? Um, and let's start talking about what the female's options are. And, and uh, Lauren Herring, I'm going to start with you. Uh, and if you need to qualify by saying that it depends on the type of treatment, that's fine. But if you don't, just talk to us in general about a woman who is getting ready to undergo treatment uh, for cancer. What should she be doing to preserve her fertility? Uh, well, the first step would be to reach out to a fertility clinic that has a fertility preservation program. And here at Genetics and IVF, Dr. Lincoln and I have a very strong, tight-knit team that we work with and, and have a lot of local physicians that contact us directly. As soon as the patient is diagnosed, they're given information, and they reach out directly to us by our personal contact information, not through the office, so they can get to us even faster. And typically, we will coordinate giving them the information either via telephone or an in-office meeting with both Dr. Lincoln and I. And just getting them the information is the first step so they can make an informed decision about whether this process is right with them. The, the key point, though, to bring up is that we don't make this decision by ourselves. We incorporate their uh, physician, their surgeon, oncologist, anybody who's involved in their treatment of the cancer diagnosis, it, we make sure that they are okay with the patient moving forward before we start anything. And so once they've made a decision to move forward, there's some general testing that we do with blood work and ultrasounds. And that's what Dr. Lincoln would use then to confirm what is the best medication protocol for these women so they have the most optimal response. Because we know, unfortunately, they normally they have just one shot. Sometimes we can, between their treatments, fit in two cycles of fertility preservation, but most often they have just one shot. So we need to make it as optimal as possible so that it yields the best results for the freezing process. So I would actually turn this over to Dr. Lincoln, though, so that he can explain a little bit more on the initial consultation, what he really goes through, because there is a process to determine whether freezing eggs or embryos is the most appropriate in each patient's situation. And that's, that's exactly where I'm kind of wanting to focus on. Okay, so you've got somebody, uh, Dr. Lincoln, who comes in, and they know they're getting ready. They would assume that their fertility is going to be impacted. Um, is uh, egg retrieval the, uh, the, 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 or the, the, the only thing, the only option they have really at that point? Well, not exactly. Um, it, it depends. In, in, let me just backtrack because I just can't help myself. I get excited. Lauren's <laughs> point about getting to a fertility specialist as soon as possible is absolutely critical. There's nothing more frustrating than for Lauren and I to have a patient call us on Friday and say, my chemo starts on Monday, and, and what can I do? And, and, and you're really limited in that situation, and, and you ask the patient, well, when did you get your diagnosis of cancer? Well, that was three months ago. And, and nobody's really talked to me about it, and I hadn't really got into this. So what we have really done is reach out to the oncologists and the surgeons, just as Lauren has said, and, and we want to talk to these patients, or we want these patients to talk to a fertility specialist within 24 hours, if possible. And Lauren and I will we'll pull off to the side of the road if we're on vacation. We'll bring them in late in the afternoon or early in the morning or weekends or whatever it is, because time is critical. 
because once we know that they've had the diagnosis of cancer, their cancer doctors are going to want to plan treatment. And we don't want to interfere with that. We don't want to delay treatment, possibly increasing the risk of progression or recurrence or such. We want to plan around their cancer treatments. But we usually have time for one or two cycles uh, if they get to us in a, in a timely fashion. So that's a critical point that I wanted to reemphasize. Now, your question about is egg freezing or embryo freezing the only thing they can do, there's been some uh, pretty good research that's been going the last few years and, and just even recently this year that suggests if you give medical treatment to suppress the ovaries, now I'm talking about when they're going to get chemotherapy, radiation, this doesn't seem to work as well, but if you can with medical suppression, if you will, enter someone into a medical menopause. Their ovaries are really shut down for a few months, but it's completely reversible. We do this for other medical conditions like endometriosis or, or big fibroids, that suppressing the ovaries while they're getting chemo may actually help their future fertility. And, and this is kind of brand new stuff. The oncologists yeah, have actually... That. Mm-hmm. They've got a nice paper that's come out uh, this last year talking about doing this. And so uh, medical suppression or onset of menopause, which is completely reversible. People hear, oh, menopause, this is not what I want. That's what I'm trying to avoid. But the medicines, if you will, kind of keep the ovaries. The theory is that for that short time, you're decreasing the blood flow to the ovaries and so the chemotherapy that's given, you know, through the IV has less effect on the ovaries and is affecting wherever the cancer is, the breast or the whatever. So maybe we're reducing that harmful effect to the ovaries. So that's one of the new messages that we're, we're trying to get out, and we're just starting to do that as well. Other than that, then we start talking about going into, which, which I'm sure your audience probably knows, is in essence an IVF cycle where you stimulate the ovaries with fertility drugs. Do this for about 8 to 10 days. We used to worry about when do we start the stimulation phase um, Traditionally, we've started at the beginning of a menstrual period. Well, they may have missed that time frame when, when you're talking to them. But Lauren and I have learned and, and others that are in this field that you can basically start a stimulation at any time during their cycle and retrieve eggs. So if they want to do this, we'll put them through the beginnings of an IVF cycle and then stimulate the ovaries <clears throat> with ultrasound and blood tests along the way plan their egg retrieval, which is basically an office or an outpatient procedure. There is anesthesia given for that, but it's usually a quick 20-minute procedure. And then our goal is to try to get 10 to 15 eggs per stimulation cycle. You can freeze eggs at that point if that's what one is interested in doing, particularly if they're not married or, or not don't have a partner. Uh, and then the traditional, if you are married, option is to consider to go ahead and fertilize those eggs with the partner sperm and then freeze the embryos. And there, there are some pros and cons to freezing eggs and freezing embryos, and we can talk about that as well. But those are the options one has, freezing eggs, freezing embryos, and perhaps suppressing the ovaries during the time of chemotherapy. Again, I had not heard about that, um, about the... <clears throat> taking the uh, suppressing the, suppression. the, uh, right. the yeah the the ovarian function uh, that's a fascinating. But let me just one. add, and I'm sorry, Don. I'm gonna add one more point about that. Uh, it is exciting that they that may help in in the effect of chemo on the ovaries. But I do want to emphasize, it doesn't eliminate the effect on the ovaries. And so you can't just say, well, I'll mm -hmm. suppress my ovaries and then everything will be fine. It's just that you have not as bad a reduction, I guess, is one way to put that, of your future fertility. Or at least upping the odds that you won't have as bad of a reduction. That's that's right. That's right. That's you know, correct. Usually, when somebody has a diagnosis of cancer, the, the all they're thinking about at that point is treating it immediately. Both obviously because at that point you're wanting it to stop the growth and and to to stop the invasion, but also just from a psychological standpoint, the desire to be doing something. But you know, just to as people say, to walk around knowing that they're living with this, you know, this potentially deadly thing inside of them is just overwhelming. 
And yet, how long, if you're going to try to preserve your fertility, that means that you must postpone the beginning of treatment. So how do how do doctors weigh that? And this is a question for you, Dr. Lincoln, but how do, how do both the reproductive endocrinologist and the oncologist weigh the risk that a patient is taking by postponing the initial treatment for the cancer versus the you know, starting the treatment and knowing that that right. that uh, yeah, right. you, you, you're going to make, lose yeah, your certainly. lose your ability. Well, uh, one thing, and, and Lauren alluded to this earlier, is very open, direct communication between the infertility doctors and their team and the oncologist and the surgeons and their team and, and saying, this is what we're thinking about doing. We're all in this together. And it sometimes takes some coordination to, to get that all worked out. But it goes back to the point that I always get so excited about, that is to say, if you contact us immediately Almost always, and you don't say always, we can get in the cycle before their treatment is, is scheduled to start. And that our goal is to not have any postponement of surgery or chemotherapy or whatnot, so that there isn't any increased risk for <clears throat> progression or recurrence of disease. Short of that, we kind of back off, and it's whatever the oncologist says. If the oncologist that's giving me chemotherapy says, it really doesn't matter if you wait a month or two or if you start your chemotherapy now, it doesn't matter. You go do what you want to do. Sometimes they'll say, no, they, they have uh, a severe lymphoma or Hodgkin's lymphoma that's progressing very rapidly, and you just don't have time. And so you do what you can in the time that's allotted, but you don't ask to, you don't ask the patient or the oncologist to push back. It's the oncologist that makes that decision. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, Dr. Adi, I'm going to assume that, that the timing issue is less of an issue for males. Um, and, uh, uh, but what is involved other than, and other than freezing a sperm sample? Is there anything else that males need to think about? And, and how do they work on a timing issue there? Because they also probably would well potentially need to get to it relatively quickly. Sure. So we we've seen patients who have plenty of time before, you know, sev- by plenty of time I mean several weeks or or even a month or so before they're going to start treatment and so they can produce more than one sample to bank and then we've also had emergency um requests where a patient is literally coming from the hospital with a diagnosis saying they're starting treatment tomorrow and luckily our facilities are able to accommodate um, same-day appointments if it's an emergency. Um, mm-hmm. Generally, in order to produce an ideal specimen to get the, the most out of a single ejaculate, we recommend that somebody come in with about 72 hours of sexual abstinence. Um, obviously, we can, as I mentioned earlier, we can freeze you know, whatever is produced, but generally about 72 hours of abstinence will produce a, a really good sample um, with a, a you know, a good count, a good volume, good motility. Um, it, it, in order to do the banking, as you said, it is pretty straightforward and very simple. Uh, simple for men. Um, generally, if a if a gentleman has more time, we'll do a consultation where where they will come into the facility. If there's no reason to think their fertility has been compromised or or if they're if there's no question about their fertility they can come in do the consultation have blood testing done and produce a sample all in the same day if there's any question about the fertility of whether or not it's even going to be worth it to bank a sample we also do offer just semen analysis where they come in produce a sample and we just do an analysis on the sample um you know we have locations in Fairfax Virginia Philadelphia Austin um, and Roseville, Minnesota. So we have on-site collection, which is the ideal way to collect and bank a sample. Um, but we also recognize that there are men throughout the country who may not live in close proximity to a fertility clinic that offers banking services. And so we actually have something called the Priority Mail, Mail-In Sperm Banking Kit. And um, it's Again, very straightforward. You can go to the website and and get all of the information about it, but you purchase this kit. It is overnighted to you, and you receive a box with a specimen collection cup, a container with transport media, and all of the paperwork you need. 
the man will produce his specimen and simply add the um, transport media, which protects the cells and helps to keep them alive. And they're able to FedEx that overnight to our Roseville, Minnesota location, where the sample is immediately analyzed and processed and frozen. The um, We've had successful pregnancies from sperm that's been frozen using the priority mail kit or in person. And from sperm that's been frozen from 20 plus years, we've had successful pregnancies reported to us. So, yeah, you know, it, it is, yeah, yeah and, and again, as we've, you know, a theme throughout the show, it's a little bit easier for men in this respect because producing a sperm sample is a lot easier than retrieving eggs, obviously, mm-hmm. um, and there's a lot more sperm to deal with. Um, so, it, you know, it's a straightforward process. Once um, the sample's been processed and frozen, the, the men can call our facilities and we'll give them an evaluation um, report and let them know how the sample looked and how many individual cryovials were frozen for their samples and how that sample can then potentially be used in the future. Dr. Lincoln, um how safe is it to for a woman who has been diagnosed with cancer to undergo the ovulatory stimulation and the medication in particular associated with that? Uh, it's a great question. We have uh, just been doing egg freezing, when I say we, we across the country and the world, uh, since like 2007, and, and Michelle will tell you, we've been freezing sperm since the 1960s, and, and we've been freezing embryos since the 1980s, so this is still a relatively new area of freezing eggs. That being said, all the data that we have so far suggests that this is a very safe thing. It is now standard of care. It's no longer any kind of experimental sort of thing. And so as far as risk to future children, we think that they're negligible or none, but time will tell as we go forward. Now, risk to the patient herself Anybody who undergoes a stimulation procedure is taking some small but real risk of complications. You know, it's a procedure. It's done in the office or done in a in an outpatient setting, but it is a procedure, and you can have infection or bleeding. A thing we call hyperstimulation can happen in rare cases. So we try to go through all of those for regular infertility patients and cancer patients alike. The question I think what you're driving at, and forgive me again for being long-winded, is does this affect their cancer and their prognosis long term? And the short answer is no, we don't think so, but we've only been doing this for a fairly short time, relatively speaking, five years or so. And so it'll take decades to prove that it's as safe as we think that it is. Now, that being said, those that get pregnant on their own after cancer treatments, uh, not doing fertility preservation, but just getting pregnant themselves, which still can occur, they do not seem to be at any increased risk of recurrence or progression of their cancer. It's very important to say that they're not at decreased risk either. So that all those things can happen, but we believe that the physical act of getting pregnant doesn't cause any risk. Taking the fertility drugs specifically or acutely around the time of the retrieval, we have worried, the oncologists particularly have worried about estrogen-sensitive tumors like breast cancer, for example, and that when we do a fertility preservation or an IVF cycle, we are zooming up their estrogens. It's a short time, only eight to 10 days, but five or tenfold what is natural, and, and that happens. That's true fact. What we've learned in the last couple of years is we can give a medication called letrozole as an anti-estrogen that keeps those estrogen levels back into the normal physiologic levels so that the oncologists are now very happy that when we do a stimulation in an estrogen-sensitive tumor, their estrogen levels are not going up dramatically like they would for a regular IVF procedure. So we think with estrogen-sensitive tumors like breast cancers, the letrozole eliminates any risk, and, and the data that we have that's been used in breast cancer patients seems to prove that out so far. But I have to emphasize, it is still a relatively young field, if you will, compared to like sperm freezing, for example. And so we don't have decades of data, but Mm -hmm. the information we do have says it is safe and it does not increase 
but just as importantly, does not decrease the risk of progression or recurrence. Well, and that takes us, leads us directly into a number of questions we receive that take us kind of beyond the how to preserve your fertility and into the should you even try realm. And, and that is, is it safe to undergo IVF after you've had cancer or and, and undergone treatment for the cancer? Um, so that's so let, let me start with the male. For the male, I would assume that since he is not undergoing hormones uh, or fertility medications and not carrying the pregnancy, that this issue of safety would be negligible for him at that point. Yes. Uh, am I right, Dr. Adi? Okay. We did yes. get, though, a question that I, I want, to, um, I want to, to read to you. She asked that I not use her name. She says, um, this may be a silly question, but my husband is being treated for leukemia. We found creating a family by Googling cancer and having a baby after cancer, so we knew that we should freeze a lot of his sperm before he went through treatment. But now I'm wondering if it is safe to use. Can cancer cells get into the semen or sperm and somehow give me cancer? It's not a silly question um, at all, so I think it's a good question. So, um, Michelle, could you talk to us about, Dr. Adi, I should say, about um, addressing the concern that uh, that she has about uh, cancer and the, how cancer could be spread through sperm. Um, yes, I can answer. So, and Dr. Lincoln, please feel free to jump in if I'm if I'm missing something. I That'd be I great. do yeah. not believe that that there is a a risk from the frozen sperm. Again, this is going to depend on the type of cancer. I think you said she said he had leukemia. Uh, yeah, but let's and let's, let's address it for more. She said in this particular for, question, leukemia. But I, let's let's we'll expand it generally. Yeah, yeah. Even if it's a metastatic cancer, unless there's a reason to believe that it has it, the the cancer is somehow you know in the um, in the semen sample, and there there is a a blood a blood barrier where um, blood does not mix directly with the ejaculate. Um, the vessels keep everything separate. It's produced from, you know, fluids that are coming from the seminal vesicles and the, and the prostate. Um, there, there should not be a high risk. That being said, I don't ever want to say never. Um, but as far as I, I have been aware that that is not something that they need to worry about. If there is any concern, the semen samples can also be further analyzed. They can be looked at. Part of an analysis of the semen sample is to identify non-sperm cells. We do sometimes see that there are immune cells in the semen sample, such as white blood cells, when there is, is an immune response. So, again, depending on a person's health, when a sample is produced, we can see that there are white blood cells in a sample. Um, I don't know of a case where somebody has been in some way um, affected in terms of cancer through an insemination. Dr. Lincoln, any thoughts on that? Oh, you know I can't help myself. (laughs) (laughs) I know. That question is not a silly question at all. It's a very good question and and something that needs to be addressed uh, when when talking with patients. And and I agree with Michelle completely. We're not going to transfer cancer cells into uh, either a fetus or, or the mom by using sperm from someone who has cancer per se. I mean, that direct, that, that, that doesn't happen. But what is perhaps an issue, and it all depends upon the type of cancer that you're talking about, is that there may be some can- rare cancers that are genetically based. Mm-hmm. And so it's in that DNA of the sperm, if, if, the, if it's the male partner that has the, the cancer, that might predispose one to having a child with similar type of cancer. Now, it can be, you know, very confusing, and there's lots of different cancers out there. And, and what we have here at GIVF is genetic counselors that try to review those issues of specifically what kind of cancer are you talking about, and is there any risk to the child? So I, I think that's a, a critical second point. The, the third thing I would say is, and Michelle may come back and address this a little bit more, is just having cancer 
in general, there has been some concern of risk of birth defects in the in the children from men who have had cancer, but that risk is not like 50%. It's like 0.01 or 0.1 or some small, if I could use the word, clinically not as Revelant. Of course, if it happens to you, it, it is very revelant. But, yeah. but that that we don't think it's so much so that it would we would encourage someone not to use their own sperm for okay. fear of risk of a birth defect to the future mm-hmm. child. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Let me take a moment to thank a few more of our gold sponsors. I want to remind you that it is through their generous support that we can bring you this show as well as all the resources we provide at Creating a Family. We have Cryos International. They are a New York sperm bank, which are part of the world's largest international network of sperm banks. They offer donor semen and semen storage services with the ability to ship specimens to more than 65 countries. We also have Nightlight Christian Adoptions. They have their embryo donation program known as the Snowflake Embryo Adoption Program, and they provide those services to clients throughout the world. We also have the law offices of James Fletcher Thompson. They are a South Carolina firm committed to assisted reproductive law as well as to adoption. Now, I wanted to switch to talking about for women, <coughs> excuse me, and the safety issue of IVF or pregnancy after cancer. And it's a more complicated picture because our reproductive systems are more complicated and because we are the ones carrying the pregnancy as well. I'd like to start because I think there's a fair amount of misunderstanding out there on what is involved with an IVF cycle that you after egg retrieval. So you're either using frozen eggs or frozen embryo. Uh, Lauren Herring, can you can you kind of walk us through how that might differ from an IVF cycle? That's what we call a full cycle that would include egg retrieval. And then we're going to kind of go into talking if that impacts. The, the risks associated to a woman um, after having on, undergone uh, cancer surgery and treatment. So so I just want to make sure I'm understanding correctly. The the steps for a frozen cycle is what you're exactly. asking, for whether it's eggs or embryos. Exactly. So the process for the woman is going to be the same. It's what's done in the lab that is different with eggs or embryos. So for a woman, she's going to take medication once, of course, we have approval from her oncologist that it is okay for her to get pregnant, but she'll take medication uh, that's taken orally typically to stimulate her uterine lining to make it nice and thick and fluffy so that after about 12 to 15 days of that medicine, we assess the lining a few times along the way, and once we get to a point where the physician feels the lining is adequate to plan a transfer, At that point, we will add in a medication, uh, a form of progesterone to help support a potential pregnancy, and that's the stage where the lab comes into play. And the embryology lab will then either thaw the eggs and then fertilize them either with partner sperm or frozen sperm or uh, uh, whether it's a donor sperm as well. So they will add the sperm to the eggs grow them in the lab for several days, and then do an embryo transfer, depending on what the lab and the physician recommend with the patient, uh, either usually three or five days later. The difference when you're going through the ovulatory, the the injectable ovulatory stimulation medication. Correct. That's correct. That stage is completely done. It's not even relevant in any way at this point because the eggs are already retrieved. So at this point, we really, in essence, don't care about the ovaries. They they don't come into the picture with a frozen cycle. We are just Mm -hmm. concentrating on the uterus and making sure that the uh, lining itself is going to be nice and thick for an embryo to implant. All right, let me read this question from Mara. She said, I just saw your post on this week's program. As someone who was diagnosed with cancer while undergoing fertility treatment, it is certainly a topic of interest to me. I had already been diagnosed with infertility, and after two failed IVF cycles, I was doing donor egg IVF at the time of my cancer diagnosis. So this may be outside the scope of your show since I don't have fertility to preserve, but my question is about doing donor egg IVF after cancer treatment. Specifically, she underwent chemo and radiation. I want to know if there is much incident of success. I also want to know if it's riskier than someone who has not had cancer and gone through cancer treatment. 
I am nervous about injecting hormones and wondering if that would increase the possibility of a reoccurrence of the cancer. So I think she's asking a couple of questions. And, Dr. Lincoln, I'm going to direct it to you. I think that one sure. of her concerns is, is regardless of the fact that it's donor egg, and that's the, the issue of the medication that she would have to take uh, to prepare herself for either a donor egg fresh cycle or a frozen uh, or frozen egg or a frozen embryo cycle. In other words, she wouldn't have to be going through the ovulatory stimulation part of it, which is, you know, we consider that kind of the big guns. You're going through gonadotropins. Right. You're using some pretty strong medications to force your ovaries to produce. Right. But in her case, regardless whether it's donor egg or her own frozen eggs or embryo, she's not going through that. She's It's more of a, would be the equivalent of a frozen embryo cycle. So could you talk to that? And then her question specifically about the success rates. Um, sure. Um, okay. And I might go in backwards order here and, and, and try to address both those questions if I heard those. The success rates after cancer treatment with either chemo or radiation particularly with using donor ag, should be about the same, with the caveat of particularly endometrial cancer or cancer of the womb, if they need radiation, and it depends on the severity and the type of cancer and such, that radiation to the uterus may affect the ability of that lining to uh, fluff up, as, as Lauren was saying, with the estrogen treatment and that sort of thing. Uh, so there is potentially the effect, particularly of radiation, on the uterus and the lining. But for the most part, chemotherapy does not affect the uterus, per se, and it works just as well afterwards if you have donor eggs or good eggs that have been frozen before. Uh, the success rates in, uh, depend, of course, on the age of the patient, if they're using their own eggs, the age that the eggs were retrieved or the embryos created. And then with donor eggs, depending upon <clears throat> how many you transfer and such, but we, we see success rates 60, 70 percent with transfer of one or two embryos. So it's very good. Not 100%, but it's very good. And unless the radiation has affected the lining, there shouldn't be so, so much a different uh, success rate for those that have had cancer. Now, what we would do to test for that is put them through a practice cycle or a mock cycle to see if the lining did grow appropriately and did respond to the progesterone uh, to make sure that the radiation did not affect uh, the lining or the uterus ability to produce a good lining. Now, I think the other question was, well, will, will this going through a cycle with donor ag put her at any risk for her mm -hmm. uh, situation? It, of course, depends on what type of cancer she has, and, and we don't have that information. But if it's an estrogen-sensitive cancer like breast cancer, there might be some effect, but as I was saying earlier, all the data that we have so far shows there is no increased risk of recurrence or progression of breast cancer. Uh, and there's been some really nice studies to look at that. Some have wondered in these studies, though, is it simply the, the healthy mother effect? That is, only those patients that are doing well from their cancer treatments are the ones that proceed with trying to get pregnant versus those that aren't doing well, then they don't go through uh, pregnancy attempts. So we're trying to sort that out. But as, as I've said a couple of times, all the data we have so far says it doesn't increase, but it doesn't decrease your risk of recurrence or progression. Okay, excellent. Well, before we get too much further and run out of time, I, I, it's unfortunate fact that any time we talk about infertility and, and treatment, we have to talk about money. Um, and does insurance, and this is no exception, does insurance, if you've got a diagnosis with, of cancer, does that shift the insurance balance, uh, whereas medical insurance would be more likely to cover fertility preservation options? Lauren? Um, unfortunately, that's, that doesn't seem to be the case at this point. Most insurance companies, though there are people definitely lobbying for it, most insurance companies do not cover this treatment, and they consider it elective. So what we here at Genetics and IVF have done is, is uh, 
twist the arm of our CEO to offer it at, as low of cost as possible. And then there is, as you mentioned, the Heartbeat program that offers mm-hmm. patients who have a diagnosis of cancer free medication. So it really does cut down the amount a patient would pay out of pocket significantly versus a routine IBS patient who doesn't have coverage. That's you know, something to what a lot of people who are just starting in the world of infertility don't realize is that your fertility meds are a significant portion of your cost. So the the Faring Heartbeat program is is a godsend for people. Um, there, I should Absolutely. also mention. It- yeah, there are grants available that would be exclusively available to for fertility preservation uh, after after cancer, and that's also something for um, for people to to look into. And next week's Don- show is going to be on loans for um, available for a fertility treatment. And although that's something that you also might want to consider at that point, I interrupted somebody. Was who is that? I was just—it's Michelle. Um, I was just going to say we we are partnered with the Live Strong Fertility Program as well, which offers an income-based discounted program for sperm banking that can be used at any of our locations or with the priority mail kit that I mentioned. An individual has to qualify um, if they make under 75000 or a family um, under $100,000. It brings the cost down from, of the sperm banking from about 650 to $350, including one year of storage for sperm. Yeah, so it's, you know, at this point, cost should not be uh, what is um, don't let cost be what is keeping you from uh, seeking treatment and, and, and getting treatment. Um, I want to end with one question that uh, I think a lot of times people are hesitant to, to raise this in the discussion, and that is whether you should try to have kids after a cancer diagnosis, the whole is it fair to the child argument. And you three all work with patients facing this decision. Um, and I, I am going to, I think I'm going to direct this question to you, Dr. Lincoln. It's uh, and it's it's not asking your opinion, but how do you see patients wrestle with the issue of balancing their prognosis with the desire to have children? I, I just feel like it's a it would be irresponsible to have a show on this topic without at least touching on it. And and so often when we've doing our research for this show, we found that it was kind of the the third rail that no one wanted to talk about. So we felt like we would we would raise it. I I think most patients are most people are. Uh, who are considering this are actively worrying about this as well. Well, that that is important, and, and we do, Lauren and I do try to discuss this with them in the visit. You know, it is information overload, but it's important to think this out, that if you're going to create embryos that you may or may not use, not necessarily because somebody dies from cancer, but their partner could get run over by a truck, as I always say. So you don't know what's going to happen in the future. The oncologists are doing wonderful, miracle jobs of treating successfully most cancers, but it's an issue, and not just passing away from cancer, but passing away from anything, or divorce, which is also not spoken but should be brought up, really, that maybe these embryos are not the best thing to create. And, and that's why Lauren and I often push a little bit to freezing eggs instead of embryos, because if it turns out your fertility is not affected, that you are able to have a child, or you don't want to have a child five years from now, it's much easier to dispose of eggs than embryos. And so we do try to have that discussion beforehand and and make sure they understand what will happen in the future. These are their eggs and their embryos, and they need to have some disposition of of what we want to do with it, what they want to do with them. Yeah, well said, actually. Um, Yeah. Yeah. We prim- let me just remind everyone that we primarily keep in touch with our audience through our twice-weekly e-newsletter. We let you know about the latest developments in infertility and adoption, as well as the upcoming week's blog show topic. Uh, we also add five pieces of new content to our site every week, and we let you know what we've added for that week, so in case it's relevant to you. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter on any page of our website, creatingafamily.org. I'm afraid we have come to the end of our time, which is just, it's always amazing to me. We still have questions to to ask, and it's always amazing how quickly one hour goes by. Let me uh, remind our audience that if you have enjoyed the show and want to help us grow, we would really appreciate if you would give us a rating uh, on iTunes. We are by far the most popular, number one ranked um, uh, show uh, on iTunes uh, dealing with the areas of infertility. 
and adoption, uh, and we'd like to remain there. And it's our ratings that allow iTunes to know how to recommend us. So we would very much appreciate it. It's also what got us listed on their What's Hot for Families and Kids uh, section on their homepage, and we would like to, to maintain our space there. So please consider giving us a, uh, a ranking. Thank you so much, Dr. Stephen Lincoln, Lauren Herring, and Michelle Otte for being on our for being on our show today, for being our guest today on creating a family. If you want to participate in a discussion of the topics of this show, uh, I'm going to be blogging on it tomorrow, and you can join us uh, at the uh, blog and, and leave your comments, and, and we would very much enjoy in that discussion. Uh, if you want to get more information, uh, you can go to, uh, with uh, Dr. Otte, you can go to fairfaxcryobank.com, which is where she hangs out, or you can click on their logo on the right-hand side of our site, since they're one of our wonderful sponsors, to get more information about uh, Dr. Lincoln or Lauren Herring, you can go to GIVF.com. That is G-I-V-F, Genetics and IVF Institute.com. Thank you for joining us today, and I will see you next week. And now, an ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right. Save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Old moon. Yeah. That's Hugo tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations.